This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, he's a man-eater, the global invasion of ogres in myth and fiction part two. Yes, we are back for our second half of our um, exploration of ogres. The ogre extravaganza. The ogre extravaganza. Um, If you haven't listened to part one, you can uh, understand what we're going to talk about here, but it definitely would help um, sort of give you a a sort of a deeper sort of appreciation, understanding of some of the discussions that we're going to have. but essentially in part one we looked at sort of the potential origins of the ogre figure and examples of sort of ogre-like creatures from around the world and in this week's episode we are actually going to sort of look at ogres from the point where the word ogre was you know first started to be used um, so we're going to kind of dive straight in to it, um, and we're going to obviously begin with the early European literature and poetry. Um, so the first known use of the word ogre um, appears in the French Arthurian romance Percival, Le Comte de Graal, um, uh, Percival, the story of the Grail, um, by um, Chrétien de Troyes. Uh, it was written between 1180 and 1190. Um, and its inclusion of the word ogre, which only appears once, but once is enough, immediately takes us down a little rabbit hole. This whole, this whole thing is just a rabbit hole which turns into a warren. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um... It, it's uh, I don't actually I'm not familiar with this poem I have to say um, mm. so if you want to explain yeah, that course. bit but I do I can definitely weigh in on some of the rest of this <laughs> yeah so um, the poem basically uh, kind of also introduces the idea of the Grail not the Holy Grail I should point out it's not actually defined as sort of holy. Um, But within the story, within the poem, there are also several other interesting sort of objects. And one of them is a bleeding spear. Now, this is not to be confused with the kind of the holy sort of Christian spear that that struck Christ. Yes, not the spear of Longinus. No. Um, Sorry, that's such a stupid name. I know it's not a stupid name, but there's something about Longinus, which just for some reason... It sounds really bad to us, to our modern ears. I mean, it's supposed to a Roman. It might be a really, like, cool name, like Chad or something. I don't know. Chad, such a cool name. Um, (laughs) uh, So in the poem, uh, this spear um, is basically a legendary weapon. And it's very likely that the spear was based on an actual kind of legendary weapon in Celtic mythology. Certainly we do see kind of similar sort of weapons um, mentioned in Irish, um, Cornish, a Welsh sort of mythology. So um, that's probably kind of the origin of the bleeding spear. Um, It is not a sort of Christian thing. And we know it's not a Christian thing because... 
um, uh, Chrétien de Troyes was a obviously a very devout Christian, and he would have he basically made all efforts to try and connect things uh, with Christ. So if he didn't, then if he, even he didn't, then there's no connection. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point, definitely. Yeah. Um, and this spear uh, in the poem, uh, the one time, uh, uh, the one time the word ogres is mentioned, is basically it said that once upon a time, uh, this spear was used to destroy the land of Logres, which was previously the realm of ogres, and that's the first known use of the word ogre. Yes. Um, okay. So log or logria was the name Geoffrey of Monmouth used for pre-Anglo-Saxon England in his 1136 The History of the Kings of Britain, which is a wonderful piece of fantasy. You should definitely <laughs> read it. <laughs> no, there's some very interesting observations in terms of the mindset of, of yeah. the sort of mid-medieval period. Um, and obviously he had a lot to say about the Arthurian cycle as well, so it's definitely yes. a valuable resource. Um, Logria comes from the Welsh log with the Welsh word log still meaning England today. So as you are leaving Wales today, you will see a sign saying Croesoi Log, meaning welcome to England. Um, <laughs> according to Monmouth, Great Britain, previously named Albion, was originally ruled by giants. Uh, very, got, uh, <laughs> very scientific. <laughs> I've got a, an interesting, interesting point on this, but I've actually read a fair bit about this. This comes out of the brute tradition, or mm -hmm. the idea that we are all descended from Brutus, who yeah. was the great-grandson of Aeneas from Troy, yes, that Aeneas, um, who settled in the country and renamed it Britain after himself, which, uh, honestly, that doesn't bear up to much scrutiny. However, the body of myths around the brute tradition are very, very interesting and tell you a lot about the mindset at the time, even yeah. though historically they're absolute bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, he, Brutus, he then divided the land between his three sons, Locrinus, Camba and Albanactus, um, sometimes they're given slightly different variations of the names, but essentially for um, Lothian, Wales and Alba, Alba, Albany, sorry, which is England. So, um, yeah, creating the kingdoms Log for England, Cambria, Wales, Albany for Scotland. Not that Cornwall, according to Monmouth, was ruled by General Corinius. Um, there, there's a whole body of myth here that we just don't have time to get into. Yeah. I, one thing I will say at this point, before we get on to sort of the etymology of the word Luke, is the fact that way, way back in the mists of time, when Madeline and I were young, starry-eyed podcast hosts who <laughs> hadn't really done very much before, um, no, I think it was about midway through our podcast career, we did an episode on giants, if you recall. Yes. <laughs> and one giant myth that everybody knows is that of Jack and the Beanstalk. And mm -hmm. the famous refrain from the giant, fee fi fo fum I smell the blood of an Englishman, etc. Or at least I hope you've heard of that one. Yeah. And I pointed out at the time that the word the words fee fi fo fum were not actually a piece of nonsense doggerel, but actually came from the Brythonic, which I will not quote here because it's quite a tongue twister. But essentially it comes from this piece of Brythonic that we actually do have and it was something that the Celtic tribes would say when they saw invaders coming in. It was something they used against the Romans and it put the fear of God into the Romans. <laughs> um, what this fee-fi-fo-fum um, means, what it actually came from was I see man meat sufficient to my hunger, as in I'm not only going to kill you, I'm going to eat you. 
And you have to bear in mind that the Romans <laughs> at the time, the Romans were short guys. So yeah. to them, the Celts, I mean, to be fair to the Romans, I would be a giant these days. They yeah. did not get enough protein in their diets. But the Celts, who quite often the women were around 5'8 to 5'10 and the men were 6 foot to 6 foot 5 or taller, yes, they mm. would have looked like giants. So this whole giant saying fee fi fo fun thing actually has a basis in historical fact. Yes. <laughs> which I think is an interesting little sidebar because I think this do- that does actually inform the whole ogres eat people thing. Uh, yeah, um, it really, really does. Um, <laughs> so, um, obviously, uh, anyone who's kind of listening will will hardly fail to notice the similarities between the word ogre and um, uh, logria. Um, is that how you pronounce it, logria? Well, if I'm going from the Welsh, it is pronounced log, but I mean, log. I don't suppose it really matters. <laughs> yeah, um, certainly in terms of kind of yeah. We, we also sort of start to see, uh, in the way that it was sort of spelt in the poem, um, log, uh, uh, Logre, um, we, it's pretty much the same, it, it's pretty much ogres, um, but with an L in front of it. So, um, you know, immediately, uh, and again, remember that this is the first time it's written down. Um, there's a connection that we can't help, you know, we can't fail not to make. Um, so some theorists have speculated that the ogres uh, were basically referring, to, uh, which were referred to in De Troy's romance, um, were the giants um, that Monmouth stated previously lived there, um, which again potentially connected the words um, ogre with orcus. Um, you know, in the, this is giant land or something like that, um, orcus or the the land of you know. Of, <laughs> the land of, of the giants <laughs> the land of the giants the, the sort of or the land of the people who eat human flesh basically or they say um, they do or they say they do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so that's entirely possible um, alternatively uh, you might speculate that the ogres were the people of Lagria so they were just you know in the same way we would have sort of oh in England you'd say someone was English um, you know, perhaps the ogres were just basically the people of Lagria. Um, in either case, um, we have this interpretation of these people who are wild, combative, and most notably, obviously, heathen. <laughs> yep. Um, I'm going to let you do this one because your German is better than mine. <laughs> okay so an ogre-like figure then appears in the medieval german poem virginal also known as dietrich erster ausfahrt likely written in the 1300s the poem details the adventures of the legendary king dietrich von bern he faces a heathen invader called orkis and his sorcerer son who are demanding virgins to eat as a form of tribute german medievalist joachim heinzel has dismissed any connections between this Orkis and the supernatural Orca. However, the story is set in the mountains of Austria from where the Orc originates. One could also uh, speculate that the Orkis is an invader from England or Brittany, or supposed to actually be the god Orcus himself, or an older variant of, but there is no direct evidence for this. 
so this is again where it's useful to have listened to, obviously to the first half so the orke um, we mentioned was was kind of one of those woodwose sort of figures who appears in sort of the mountains of Austria um, so um, yeah I, I kind of do have to sort of narrow my eyes in Heinzel as like a no 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 the Orkis is abs- has absolutely no bearing on the Orca of Austrian folklore despite the fact that literally this battle is taking place in the mountains of Austria. <laughs> so, yeah, but there, there's no there's no relation. It's like there's certainly circumstantial evidence. I think we could we could sort of agree with that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, at the very least, it's possible that even if it wasn't kind of meant to be the creature itself, that you know the name was drawn from the creature at the very least. Yeah, definitely. Um, so regardless of the origin and the initial relationship, obviously, between all of these figures, um, the Orkis, um, the uh, Ogres, the Ork, etc., et um, we kind of sort of, they all start to appear in writing during the medieval period. So um, so whether or not they were related, whether or not the um, the Orc did come from Orcus, the god, uh, whether or not Orkis was a type of Orke, whether or not um, Ogre was sort of born from Orc um, or Orcus, um, it doesn't matter because all of these names start to appear in writing around the same time. Yeah. So it's not hard to see how they could become conflated if they weren't already with one another and begin to inform the qualities that we begin to identify with ogres today. Namely, the fact that they are wild, that they are hairy, that they are immoral um, or slash unchristian, obviously, as we get into certain texts, and obviously that they eat people. Yes. Um, and it's also worth mentioning when we're talking about uh, orcus, orca, orcus, etc., all being conflated together, is the fact that actually there wasn't any consensus on how words were spelt until comparatively recently and there certainly wasn't during the medieval period when most people could read but very few people could actually write yeah and I'm, it's like a dysle- it's a dyslexic's dream it's just like how does it spell however you think it <laughs> it's, it's like how does it sound well okay you know these words these letters kind of go together and yeah. then you you add in things like regional dialect and the fact that the country was divided between like three or four different languages at the same time. Yeah, and and also bearing in mind that of course uh, one of these sort of texts is German and stuff like that. You know, um, you then start to have translations coming in and and people who are, you know are reading different texts, etc. So yeah, um, it all kind of it starts to sort of mix and be sort of messed around. Yeah. Um, now, Madeleine has a little theory here. Bearing in mind, this is just something that I've kind of sort of thought up based on what we've looked at just now. So considering the connections of the ogres with the pre-Christianized Britons and Celts um, in the poem Percival, uh, plus the naming of pre-Christian England as Lagria by Monmouth, and the obvious parallels with the defeat of Orkis in Virginal, um, I kind of wonder if we aren't starting to see a bit of a George and the Dragon situation. So um, it's theorised, and Jules has talked about this in previous episodes, that the, the George and the Dragon mythos and very other similar kind of stories are actually reflections of the eradication of Celtic paganism. 
Um, so the dragons were the druids who would need virgins or sacrifices or people in inverted commas, uh, namely children, um, in order to train as more druids. So they would take them from a young age and the, these children would be removed from their families um, so that they could be druids. Um, and the, they were stomped out and stopped by Christian crusaders who essentially didn't want the druids causing disquiet among the conquered natives because they were representative of the old free world rather than the Roman ruled world. Yeah, and this may even be reflected more recently with the the more rigid church of Europe under the mm. rule of the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope, etc., uh, yeah. stamping out the Church of the Celtic Rite, which is what we had in Britain up until sort of 1066. So... Yeah. You know, the Church of the Celtic Rite was very, very pagan. If you read a lot of the stuff, it's kind of like, is is this actually a Christian text or is this this pagan myth? It, there's so much crossover. Um, clearly, they're talking about the Judeo-Christian God, but their version of the Judeo-Christian God does a lot of weird pagan shit. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, it's, it's like if you compare also Christianity and sort of Christian doctrine and, and sort of... Um, uh, traditions in Ireland versus Britain, you tend to see a little bit more of that kind of surviving in Ireland yeah. than you do um, than you do in in Britain. Yeah, Irish Roman Catholic Catholicism rather is is completely different to sort of like if you've been brought up a, a sort of Catholic in Italy or a Catholic in France or a Catholic in England. There's there's yeah. a little bit of extra supernatural with the Irish stuff. Yeah, it's it, it is a different experience. So you could say, oh, hold on, that you know, there's lots of obviously there's crossover because it's it's Catholicism either way. Um, but uh, yeah, you will notice immediately that there is um there are some stark differences in experiences, um, etc. Now, uh, given that, um, and given their sort of repeated association with nature and with um, heathenism. I actually kind of wonder whether ogres in the sort of these early stories are sort of playing a similar role to the dragons um, in that they are symbols of the old um, sort of unchristianized and uncivilized world um, and which are therefore prescribed very savage qualities including you know being disruptive um, and killing people and obviously eating them because it seems to be this kind of thing where, you know, with the dragons, for example, if we think of the dragons as druids, the druids weren't eating the the children who were sort of presented to them. Um, the children who then become virgin maidens because it's apparently, you know, so that the, the hero can swoop in and sort of there yes. can be a romance. Um, they weren't eating them. They were, you know, they were training them. Um, but suddenly they they become monstrous man-eaters. Um, so are we kind of looking at the same thing in that ogres were made into man-eaters because they they had they basically had to be these demonized figures? Yeah, I see. I think there's a lot of merit to that hypothesis. Um, again, because I think you have to like look from the perspective of if. We I'm not trying to diss Christianity here but, um, or any organised religion, but I, I do want to say that when an organised religion sweeps in and tries to convert the natives, 
what usually happens is you get pockets of people believing lots of different stuff. Yeah. Um, there has never, in my, to my knowledge, never ever been anywhere where everyone has immediately abdicated their original religious beliefs in favour of this new incoming faith. It just doesn't happen. But obviously, it's not very exciting if you then write mm. chronicles about that and say, oh yes, well, they came round to us by dribs and drabs, but there are still the holdouts in these various places where sort of 20 or so people all practice the old ways and we don't know what to do about them. That's not yeah. exciting. So when people are chronicling, and just because someone is a Christian monk um, who you know did a lot of the chronicling, you or you know they, they were writing the biographies of the lives of the saints. They were not mm-hmm. above writing fan fiction, essentially, of these people. Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, giving it a little bit of extra polish. I mean, you re- want to read the life of Saint Columba, or um, <laughs> because it's it's absolutely fa- you know it's a fantasy story. Uh, there's there's yeah. some historical verifiable fact in that, but. A lot of it is fantasy, like the, the the one about him trapping a demon in a pail of water, for example. <laughs> That's amazing. There's some absolutely fascinating, again, but you can't take it as, as read because it's just... So, yeah, I, I do agree with this. What what do you do with people when you cannot get them to buckle down? When you dehumanise them, you call them ogres, you call them monsters, you call them witches, you call them heathens. Yeah. Heathens literally means heath dweller somebody who's living in the world and refusing to conform to society yeah um and it's also interesting of course um and one has to remember that these figures you know these figures of the old world would have you know it's not that they were peacefully walking around either the druids who would sort of cause problems um were not you know gentle sort of people they were forces of power they could be warriors but more than that they incited you know um kind of this this national pride in people um they were advisors they were smart they were tactical um you know these were fierce enemies in some cases you know the the exact sort of people that you would fear and who were cunning usually as well so you get this idea yeah. of the tricksters and stuff like that, the people who could also, you know, seem to disappear into nature because they knew the terrain so well because it was their terrain. Yeah, I mean, there is this perception, particularly with the Druid revival movement that happened in the late 1800s, that the Druids were kind of peaceful nature worshippers, uh, repositories of great wisdom and sources of music and art and culture. And what they mostly were, were was a political, religious organization they were a theocracy and they they you know they spun the fate of kings they, yeah they really did there is a reason why the romans wanted to wipe them out when they didn't really care about anybody else keeping their own religions you don't wipe yeah. out a religion if generally it's a comfort to a populace unless you yourself are a theocratic state the romans weren't they were far more cynical than that yeah. um but you know, Celtic Britain was largely quite theocratic, albeit in a way that we wouldn't recognise nowadays. If you want to remove the existing political power structure, then you needed to get rid of the Druids, which was what the Romans did. Um, yeah. And they were also kind of shit scared of them as well, because of yeah. this this huge political power they, they wielded. So, so yeah, yeah. Um, there, is a, there is a lot to be said for that, that theory. And a lot of this is obviously much later than, say, the Romans and the Celts, but... yes. Yeah, um, you you do have to also bear in mind that obviously when we think of the Romans, we think of a certain period, forgetting, of course, that, 
you know, the Roman Empire. (laughs) Yeah, the Roman Empire actually kind of went on. We don't, it stopped being called the Roman Empire. Um, you know, but uh, <laughs> it's sort of the sort of the Roman influence and stuff like that uh, continued on for a long time, and obviously shaped also. You know, Britain, and then the Anglo-Saxons arrived, and then etc. Um, anyway, Here, here's uh, the interesting thing: the the Roman Empire, as such, sort of went rotten and died from within, and the Visigoths came, but it didn't go completely. What was left of it became the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, and of course we do have the Byzantine Empire. Yeah, uh, you know, which is which who actually would have continued to refer to themselves as Roman for a very long time. It was only kind of much later that they were sort of given the name Byzantine. So like at the time they would have been like, "What are you talking about? We are Roman." So yes, the the sort of the Roman Empire from well, sort of from Rome as it were. Uh, yes, I doubt, but the the empire that they created, like a, like another branch of it, essentially just sort of took took control, as it were. Yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other thing uh, which we don't have time to go into. Um, so we're going to kind of jump ahead now, um, and we're staying in France. So uh, once again, we really see the tradition of the of very particularly the word ogre. Um, kind of really being used in France. Uh, So we are jumping forward about sort of 500 years um, to when the ogre really becomes solidified in the French fairy tales of uh, Charles Perrault and uh, Marie-Catherine Delnoy. Um, And we've got kind of uh, sort of four four stories, four or five stories that really particularly stick out in this. So I'm going to start with Perrault, then get into um, uh, Marie uh, Dalnoy, and then um, do a kind of combined one because uh, she basically just copied him. So... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, as you do. As you do. Uh, So the first one is uh, Perrault's Sleeping Beauty. Uh, Now, uh, Sleeping Beauty, um, in Perrault's case, doesn't actually end with the prince, with the princess being awoken. Um, I should also say, fun little caveat, uh, Perrault's Sleeping Beauty is not woken by true love's kiss. So we don't have any of that weirdness, uh, which you get in, you know, like the the sort of Snow White and stuff like that in in the churn and stuff like that. Uh, No, instead, he just thinks she's absolutely beautiful and he falls to his knees beside her bed and she wakes up and smiles at him and they fall instantly in love with each other. So, well done, Perrault. (laughs) Big tick. He really sanitised that. I mean, we will do an episode on Sleeping Beauty. Yes, we will. It's horrific. Okay. <laughs> it's one of so, the most horrifying fairy tales ever. Yeah. Um, so his his version um, didn't include that, um, but his it also didn't end with her kind of being awoken. Instead, um, uh, you know, they fall in love and they get married, but they keep their marriage a secret, and that they have two children, um, um, Aurore, um, which probably inspired. Aurora's name in the Disney version, and jour meaning dawn and day. 
Um, so they stayed in their castle and the prince would basically commute from his father's kingdom. Now, when his father, the king, died, the prince obviously ascended to the throne. Um, and at that point, he brought his wife and his two children to the castle. Um, it's kind of speculated he left them originally in the other castle for their protection. Now, unbeknownst to him, and this is the bit that makes me laugh, um, is that the prince, now the young king's mother, is of ogre descent. This is an interesting concept because technically that would mean that the prince is also of ogre descent. Now, this suggests that the ogre-like behaviour is actually a cultural choice rather than a natural predilection. Um, again, an interesting concept that might tie us into this idea that perhaps the ogres, therefore, were, you know, those giants, those, you know, meant, are meant to represent the old world rather yeah. than being a different species. Yeah. So, so uh, in the story, the young king at one point has to go away, at which point the ogress queen, um, his mother, demands that her chef, over a series of days, cook her two grandchildren and her daughter-in-law. Um, she literally just sends them off and says, right, what I want you to do is I want you to cook them one by one. First she asks for like one child, first she asks for the boy, then she asks for the girl, and then she asks for the mother. Um, the chef ingeniously tricks the ogress by instead hiding them and giving her uh, lamb, goat, and venison. Um, what's actually quite funny is in the story she actually specifically specifies what kind of sauce she wants <laughs> with the food. She has like particularly refined tastes. Um, eventually however the chef is discovered um, at which point the ogress um, prepares a pit or a kind of a bath full of snakes and other venomous creatures. Um, whether just to throw the chef in or to also kill um, her, the children, stuff like that, uh, we never find out because she's thwarted by the return of the young king. Um, she's thus exposed as an ogress and decides to fling herself into the pit instead, where she's consumed and disappears. Um, it is, should also be pointed out that this appears to be the first time that the word ogress appears, meaning female ogre. Yeah, that's a, that's a wild... I, I don't think Perrault really knows how to end a fairy tale. I, I, well, or maybe he really knows how to end a fairy tale. Uh, <laughs> it's like, well, I've sorted everything else out, but she still has her mother-in-law. We have to get rid of her. Y yeah. <laughs> How can we do that and justify it in narrative terms? I think he seemed to really have a have a terror of mother-in-laws and stuff, didn't he? Yeah. Puss in Boots obviously has an ogre, or depicts an ogre. Um, we've already done an entire episode on Puss in Boots, so you should check that out. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously there will be other fairy tale special episodes in the future. However, as a brief reminder, the ogre at the end of the story is a marquise who rules over a vast area and is very wealthy. Like the Austrian orc, he can also transform himself. And the clever puss in boots tricks him into becoming a mouse and then eats him. So there's always somebody eating somebody else yeah. in these stories. So when the young miller's son arrives at the ogre's house with the king and princess, the cat is able to claim it belongs to his master because, you know, he's basically killed off the ogre already. Yeah. 
Um, there are two interesting things of note here. First, as in Sleeping Beauty, the ogres are not savage and wild figures, but instead members of the aristocracy. As noted in previous episodes, there is a potential anti-aristo lean here, which Perrault was oblivious to. <laughs> he was oblivious to so many things, let's yeah, be honest. He was. <laughs> um, however, it is also possible he was also using the ogre to represent the old world, um, so just the same as in the previous story. It's yeah. worth noting that Perrault was one of the moderns, believing that the art and literature of his time was enlightened and far superior to the revered classics of antiquity. Um, this was tied deeply with Perrault's religious devotion and wasn't confined to polite academic debate. Um, oh no. <laughs> honestly, whenever I see anybody going, yes, but the art of our time is superior, I tend to find that that person doesn't actually understand the art that's come before or how it's influenced what they consider the totally original art of their time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there literally is this whole... like you this whole thing about this debate between um sort of the, the moderns um and sort of the the people who, who supported the the antiquity so um and just to show you actually how like serious this was this wasn't just them just arguing over a cup of tea um you know the moderns openly condemned people of being unpatriotic and heretical and Perrault even actually had tried to have a man charged with blasphemy remember an incredibly serious crime um, of the period, uh, f simply for preferring the works of pagan Greek authors to the modern Catholic French ones. Yeah, so basically people were getting cancelled back in the 1600s, it was just like you couldn't really start an internet war because the internet wasn't invented yet. Yeah. But essentially it's the same drive. Yeah, um, the ogre therefore could very well represent the the classics, um, or even those who supported the classics in his stories, in that they held status and power, but were unable to shake the inherent barbarism of their nature, um, being unchristianed. Uh, sorry, being unchristian and unenlightened. Yes. Okay, we then jump over to uh, Dalnoy. Um, and one of her stories is called The Bee and the Orange Tree, um, or uh, in French, uh, L'Orangeur et l'Abeille. Uh, for some reason, they switch it around when it's translated into English. I guess people yeah. just think the orange tree and the bee doesn't sound as good. Maybe it sounds better in French that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, she also uses an ogre in her story. In fact, she has several ogres. So the tale follows a young princess who is lost... Uh, when her ship overturns when she's a baby. Now, fortunately, she doesn't drown, but washes up on an island of ogres. How convenient. Um, they decide that despite the fact that they usually eat the people who wash up, that they're going to raise her and make her the bride of their infant son. Presumably, they just think, oh, wow, she's really pretty, even as a baby. We'll raise her and then marry her off. Now, eventually, the girl grows, and uh, she, event she actually finds and saves a young prince who has also washed up on the shore and would therefore have been eaten. Um, over time, the pair realise that she is actually the lost princess and that they're cousins. Um, he is, in fact, the next heir to the throne. Um, but before they can really do anything about it, the prince is captured. Now, the princess tricks several of the ogres into eating each other. Um, this, this, gets, she basically make, makes them not able to recognise each other um, and therefore they eat, begin to eat each other. Um, she then steals one of their magical wands 
and uh, first of all uses it so that she can actually speak the same language as the prince um, because they can't speak languages um, and then they kind of use it to escape um, and they escape using the ogre's camels and something obviously we should note now throughout their journey the princess then uses the one to transform herself and the others into various animals and fauna in order to escape detection um, eventually however the wand is stolen which leaves the princess and the prince stuck as a bee in an orange tree but a good fairy passes and transforms them back returning them home where they marry and live happily ever after as cousins in an incestuous relationship um, now just as with Peralt uh, Dalnoy seems to be using uh, ogres to represent heathen people um, you know showing them to be ugly cruel and conniving however um, unlike Peralt her ogres are savages so they're not members of the Aristo um, and it is very clearly a barely disguised highly xenophobic commentary on Middle Eastern and North African native people <laughs> Yeah, see, it's quite an ignorant one as well, because aside from the camels, she doesn't really seem to know very much about them. No, she you, really, really You could doesn't. have said, oh, well, actually, they're those those savages who live over in England, couldn't she? <laughs> yeah. Right up until the point you introduce camels, it's like, well, you don't tend to have those. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, it's the fact that, you know, she's basically like, oh, we have these ogres and stuff like that. And she's like, but with the inclusion of camels, we now know where they're supposed to be and therefore kind of who they're supposed to represent so um yeah that, that's barely disguised but once again it's the use of of ogres to kind of to to sort of represent heathen sort of people and and sort of people of of the wilderness who are i say in inverted commas uncultured and uncivilized yes okay so um we've got I kind of want to talk about two here, um, uh, Little Thumb, uh, uh, Petit Pouce, and um, Finette Sendrone. Um, so Dalnoy does seem to draw a lot on Perrault's fairy tales in her own work. Uh, and of course, Perrault draws from quite a few oral folk tales. Um, both Perrault's Little Thumb um, and uh, Dolnoy's uh, Finette Centron have very similar premises at the beginning before going off. Um, and both of them are very similar to Hansel and Gretel. So um, in one version, a king and a queen, uh, it's a king and a queen who have been sort of left in poverty, having been ousted. In another version, it's a woodcutter and his wife. Uh, they are poor and they basically decide to abandon their children in the forest. The youngest of the children uh, contrives to find their way back using various tools, including thread, ashes um, and stones. Eventually, however, they make the mistake of using something edible, um, peas or breadcrumbs, and the birds end up eating the trail. Uh, so this is, again, very familiar, just like with Hansel and Gretel. Now, again, just like with Hansel and Gretel, the children eventually come across an estate in the woods. Um, but in this case, it's not made of, you know, edible stuffs. Um, and instead of the Grimm's Witch, these estates are owned by ogres. Now, Perrault's tale um, has the ogre welcome the children uh, with the intention of killing them while they sleep. So like the witch, welcome, come in, um, you know, I, you are my guests, and then 
actually it's going to be a trick. Uh, while Del Noy's ogres uh, don't even pretend, they just catch and cage the children. <laughs> Um, but then uh, basically make them, uh, because there's two ogres in her story, um, and in order to, uh, one of them, in order to kind of make sure that she gets to eat them alone and, and that her, kind of her husband doesn't eat them, basically says, oh, no, no, um, we're going to keep them as servants. So uh, they make them kind of do the housework. Again, very much like in, um, like Gretel. Uh, now, the youngest, again, um, in both cases, uses trickery and, and guile to defeat the ogres. So Perrault's ogre um, basically is tricked into accidentally killing his own daughters instead of uh, the, the, the sons um, who, are, uh, who are visiting, um, while uh, Del Noy's um, <laughs> heroine basically kills one of the ogres by tricking him into an oven, again, much like Hansel and Gretel, and by cutting the ogress's head off while uh, doing her hair. Um, now, it appears that in both Perrault and Del Noy's work, the defining feature again of the ogres, which separates them from the similarly magic fairies, um, who, who are basically kind of adopted as pseudo angels, um, is specifically their taste for human flesh and the fact that they're they're ugly so they're ugly instead of the fairies who are beautiful beauty obviously being a sign of virtue ugliness being a sign of immorality um and the fact that they eat humans um this distinctive feature likely went on to inform the naming conventions of other foreign fairy tales when they were translated into english um, I have here a, sort of a quote by a, um, an academic, uh, an author named uh, Maria Tata, um, who basically notes the phenomenon um, in, the, in the translations of the Grimm's anthologies. Um, this is in her book, The Hard Facts of the Grimm's, Grimm's Fairy Tales. Um, the quote is a little bit too good not to share, so I'm going to share it, but I will abbreviate it um, because it is quite long. So uh, Tata says, there are three types of ogres in the nursery and household tales. The first comprises beasts and monsters and the man-eating giants. The second group consists of social deviants, robbers and highwaymen who waylay innocent young women, murder them, chop up their corpses and cook the pieces in a stew. The third, and this group easily outnumbers the members of both other categories, is composed of women. These are various cooks, stepmothers, witches and mothers-in-law with ferocious appetites for human fare, and sometimes even for the flesh of their own relatives. The term applied almost uniformly to these female ogres is the German Menschenfresserin. Menschenfresserin. Thank you very much. Uh, which literally translates to devourer of humans. A, a, word, word. <laughs> a, far, a word far more expressive than the English ogre generally used to translate it. <laughs> I thought that was a great quote. <laughs> it is a really good quote. Um, yeah, I really like that, that word mentioned presser and I could have to use that obviously yeah. regularly in everyday conversation. Yeah, every <laughs> right time to talk about women who eat human flesh. Um, okay, so let's um, from that. I kind of also want to sort of nod, obviously, to modern fairy tale retellings. Um, now, as mentioned uh, in the last episode, the thing that kind of brought all this on was the fact that Jules and I have both 
recently listened to Ogre Enchanted by Gail Carson Levine. Um, now, she has written several fairy tale retellings and she makes great use of ogres um, who act as kind of ongoing antagonists to the humans, even if not, they're not the main antagonists of the story. Um, they bear many of the recognisable traits that we've already examined, including obviously being strong, being ugly, being hairy, being violent and obviously eating people. Um, Interestingly, though, they are also given a glamour-like quality um, when it comes to their speech, where they can essentially control the emotions of their prey with their voices. Yeah, I mean, I find that, uh, I think that's kind of what sold it for me. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, I, I recommend something to Madeline to read. She reads it and then she not only reads it, she goes and reads everything else the author's written and leaves me in the dust. <laughs> so I was kind of catching up by... I suddenly realised the library had the audiobook, e audiobook of um, Ogre Enchanted, and I thought, oh, I can get to it quickly if I read the audiobook. So I did, and I was, Madeline was getting a blow by blow account of how angry I was with certain characters and stuff. So, <laughs> as, yes. as you do. Um, yeah. But yeah, the whole use of ogres in that, and the fact that they have a compulsive quality, and then you discover in Ogre Enchanted that um, because the main character is actually transformed into an ogre and has mm -hmm. to contend with an ogreish nature as well as trying to get her human identity back. Um, she she realises that the ogres do have this, this sort of empathic, uh, clairvoyant ability to perceive their prey's emotions and manipulate them, make them smaller yeah. or bigger, which is a really interesting take on the whole ogres having, having magic thing. Yeah. The thing that really interested me um, was obviously Ella Enchanted was, you know, the first within that sort of series. Um, and, you know, we got an idea of, of the ogres and they were just sort of villainous. And Ella very cleverly um, is able to mimic people and is thus actually able to turn, you know, their the, the sort of ogres against them, uh, thereby controlling them. Um, but, you know, there's nothing kind of redeemable about them. And Ogre Enchanted was interesting in that we don't lose any of the ogre-like qualities. It's not that we suddenly learn, oh, well, some ogres, you know, won't eat people. Um, but we kind of get to see sort of a bit of an insight about them. And there were some really interesting details, which kind of made them more human. I mean, first of all, our protagonist is herself now an ogre but obviously she's also still human so she doesn't eat people um but the interesting thing is that the ogres don't differentiate between any kind of creature they will just eat whatever uh, yeah. so they don't differentiate in fact the only differentiation they make is that they don't eat gnomes because gnomes don't taste good to them yeah that's um, <laughs> yeah, that, that's literally the only reason um and um, one of the things that really stuck out for me is the fact that um, the ogres aren't friends with one another. They kind of work in bands because it, it sort of, it, that's how they function. They will constantly fight, but at night they all cuddle in together and they find it inherently comforting. Yeah. Like the, the smell and the feel of, of the others. Um, it's something which is actually literally within their biology. Um, and I thought that was such an interesting detail as well, 
in the it's not that you kind of turn around and go well actually i sort of maybe like ogres and they're misunderstood no they're still ogres but we kind of start to see them with dimensions that look at them as thinking living creatures that have their own sort of lives yeah absolutely it's things like this will be sound like a, a stupid thing to say but in ogre enchanted where she's talking about the fact that her ogre smell was coming through this is clearly like a, a pheromonal type thing it's natural for them to smell and smell and somewhere in the human brain that's kind of a signal for oh god they smell really awful because they're this awful thing that will try to eat us in the yeah. same way that, you know, we've kind of evolved alongside things like skunks, which smell really bad to warn us off. Mm-hmm. Um, and the things like, uh, you know, she has this urge to be dirty rather than clean. And yeah. every time she tries to clean herself up, she's got this urge to go and get dirty again. And this is clearly an instinctive thing for ogres. So it's not that they're evil. It's just that they're a different species and we happen to be on their dinner list. <laughs> Yeah. And the thing that's particularly interesting is that when it comes to sort of like her ogre smell, um, at one point it does get completely covered and the her, the character of Wormy, who, who sort of is kind of the sort of love interest, um, uh, on and off, <laughs> depending <laughs> on what part of the book you're on, yeah. um, he kind of he he's actually disquieted by it because he said that originally even when obviously there was the ogre smell underneath it all was her scent yeah you know you don't smell like you you smell like peonies it's like this isn't quite right (laughs) yeah um and so it's this kind of this idea that there is you know something of the sort of the identity that's within that smell too um and it's comforting therefore because it's it's part of the self, you know. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where, by, you know, like um, I have actually been in a situation where I smelled someone who didn't smell like they usually did. Yeah. Um, in that they the, the scent, you know, their natural scent wasn't there for whatever reason, and it was this weird moment where, um, you know. I was there, I was with them, I gave them a hug, and suddenly my brain went, this is not the person, this is some someone else. I mean, I have to say, having spent, oh God, about 20 odd years, almost working in like various fields in the NHS, mm. and you, you can't help but at a certain point, you start to be able to smell certain sicknesses and medications yeah. and things on people, and you... It, it, even though you don't necessarily want to know that in a sort of a social setting or whatever, when you're not at work, you can't yeah. help knowing, if you see yeah. what I mean. So yeah, I do get I do get you on that one. Yeah. Um, okay, so <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about orcs. <laughs> <laughs> now, at, at this point, you might go, now hold on a second, Madeline. Orcs are not ogres. Um, and if you've once more listened to the first half, you will start to see my thinking here, but I will explain it. So um, Tolkien's work obviously features a number of very recognisable creatures from mythology, uh, not least elves and trolls, um, etc. Um, his infamous orcs are a little bit more unique, however, um, with their name drawn from, again, the Anglo-Saxon word orc, 
which can be notably found in the epic of Beowulf um, in the compound word um, Orcius. Uh, I, I say it like it's a Roman Latin word. So, <laughs> or, 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 how do you say it? Uh, I'd just say Orcius, to be honest. Yeah, okay. okay. Um, which kind of is translated, uh, sort of depending on who tr- who's translating, as kind of evil spirit or demon corpse. Now, uh, the this kind of means that orcs and ogres um, are potentially derived from the same root word. And early English dictionaries, as previously stated, um, do begin to define the word orc as meaning ogre. So that's kind of the the translation that they choose for it. Again, it's not necessarily about saying, therefore, that's it's a direct path, but rather what what has become and what became conflated and how names are applied based on certain behaviours. So as previously discussed, many do believe that the word orc, uh, like the Austri- uh, um, Austrian orca, were derived from the Roman god of the underworld, um, Orcus. Uh, Tolkien himself was a little bit dubious of this connection, and he theorised that the words instead might have had an older, common origin uh, from a much earlier Indo-European mythology. Uh, but we therefore we do therefore kind of still get this idea that therefore orc and ogre kind of have the same root. Yeah. So even though Tolkien doesn't use the word ogre, the orcs do have a lot of ogre-like qualities, uh, given the fact that they are bestial, malevolent, and obviously they enjoy human flesh, or orc flesh, or to be honest, any sort of flesh. They yeah. just seem to really like flesh. <laughs> um, their origin as corrupted elves, uh, bearing in mind that they, they're kind of ascribed lots of different origins um, but one of them the recognized ones is the fact that they are these kind of corrupted elves um, also offers a rather interesting parallel to the relationship between the fairies and the ogres of earlier fairy tales with again both of them being of magical stock but one representing savagery and immorality uh, versus the other representing finery and morality Yes. Um, so, with actually with this in mind, um, there is a, a guy named Tom Shippey uh, who, in his book *The Road to Middle Earth*, uh, noted that the orcs of Tolkien's world were simply convenient narrative tools which were used to create conflict. Um, his quote is basically that they were a supply of enemies over whom one need feel no compunction. Interestingly, the orcs thus share the narrative fate of many ogres. Um, lacking any, in, any kind of moral dimensions, they literally exist to solely highlight the hero's virtue uh, by sheer contrast. Um, their uncompromising malevolence and amorality also then basically absolves the hero of any and all acts of violence, trickery or theft that the hero commits against the ogres because they inherently deserve everything that's coming to them. Yes, it's a bit like Jack stealing from the giant. It's okay because he is a giant kind of thing. 
Exactly. Um, okay, well, Terry Pratchett plays on this idea of orcs in his Discworld book, Unseen Academicals, and it certainly crops up in other parts of the Discworld series as well, um, where it's revealed that the Emperor would have goblins turned into orcs and force them to fight in his wars. Um, intentionally or not, Pratchett highlights the idea that the fierce orcs, ogres in the narrative are illusions behind which are real people who have been forced into a role and in order to fulfil someone else's agenda. Now, personally, knowing what I know about Terry Pratchett, I would say this was entirely intentional. Terry yeah. Pratchett was a fan of the Elder Scrolls games. And <laughs> he actually, well, this was back when um, Morrowind was being played on you know, desktop computers, which you know I've never played Morrowind because I sort of came in at um, Oblivion, which was a bit later on in the Elder Scrolls franchise. Um, but there are various dungeons and things, and goblins are one of the lower class enemies you come up against. Terry yeah. Pratchett actually asked them to mod the game for him so that instead of going in and having to kill the goblin because it attacked him, he could go in and interact with them and watch them. Mm. Um, because in his view, someone isn't an enemy until you necessarily make them one or until they do something that behaves in the way of an enemy. He was yeah. very much of the... I think it's in one of the Vimes... In fact, it's definitely one of the Vimes books I'm trying to remember, where Vimes is saying, you know, I'm fed up of hearing people saying they dragged someone kicking and screaming to their point of view. What happened? Taking someone by the hand and leading them gently. That way, when you, but you get there, you're both still friends. That is something yes. we really, really could do with remembering these days, when apparently, if somebody has a different opinion to you, that means your opinion is invalid. Ergo, you must fucking cancel them. And yeah. a lot of this comes into how Terry Pratchett uh, uses goblins and orcs and things in his books. Um, there's a point where, <laughs> it's very funny actually, during the Watch series, where he actually has one of the go he has a goblin joining the City Watch. And mm -hmm. Vimes starts off by saying, yeah, all right, you're in, mate. But quite frankly, I don't like goblins. On the other hand, I don't really like anybody. So keep your nose clean. Be a decent watch officer and we'll see how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> and Vimes has said quite categorically before this, I don't actually trust goblins because I know they're going to stab me in the back. But on the other hand, I've been told I've got to have a more diverse workforce. Ergo, the goblin is in and, you know, he gets a chance the same way everybody else does. Yeah. So you can, always, you can always trust Pratchett to go, hang on a minute, does this really mean what we think it means? Or are we just handing on some sort of old cultural prejudice that we've lost the origins of in the midst of time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, orcs have also then become a staple of role-playing games, tabletop games, and uh, the kind of the narratives that they have gone on to inform. Um, such as in Dungeons and Dragons, Elder Scrolls, and Warhammer. Uh, Jules and I also recently, you know, recommended and talked about uh, the book Legends and Lattes, yes. um, where the main character is again an orc. Um, in these instances, um, we tend to see orcs who have assimilated among other races. So in some of, uh, some of the early ones, they are just kind of, well, they're the enemy. Um, but now we start to see kind of more of an assimilation. Um, and as this assimilation occurs, they begin to lose the ogre-like qualities, which, um, you know, were given to them by Tolkien. 
um, their transformation is in some ways sort of reminiscent of the transformations of the Klingon in Star Wars, who obviously went from being these violent, warmongering invaders um, to kind of being revealed to be a more dynamic society with a deep and engaging culture based on honour. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, moving on to modern orcs. No, modern ogres. Modern ogres, not modern orcs. Modern orcs, modern orcs, modern ogres. I got you! You did get me. I'm now conflating the two. Even though in my mind, like, an ogre is one thing and an orc is another, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. They, they've got so much crossover. Um, anyway, so just as orcs were rebranded and diversified, their alter egos have also enjoyed new interpretations in the modern day. Um, one, I say the modern day, but I mean, to be honest, this first one I'm going to talk about was a favourite childhood film of mine from the 80s. And I've got a <laughs> feeling it was actually released in sort of like 1984, 86. Yeah, but so, considering that we've been talking about, you know, t- just just on this episode today, we've been we've been going back to sort of like the, the 11. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, fair point. It is that. It is modern. But it's 80s modern. Um, that's The Flight of Dragons. If you haven't seen Flight of Dragons and you're a fantasy fan, go and find this film. I think it's now available on DVD. It's amazingly egalitarian and progressive for its time considering when it was made and it's very yeah. quite di- it's quite diverse in its casting and how it handles things um for its time as well however one of the ones who doesn't really get much of a break in this is the ogre of gormley keep um and what happens here is that it's a quest narrative peter is brought from the modern world the modern mm-hmm. world being sort of 1920 chicago <laughs> to uh, this fantasy realm which lies underneath and Peter's always been a dreamer and he's always loved dragons the idea of dragons um, and it basically it's four wizarding brothers who are technically at war with each other but they're not allowed to war directly so they can only send agents um, right. one brother Omadon wants to basically completely wipe out humanity so that the, the age of myth and magic will rule everything again. Whereas uh, Coralinus, the Earth brother, the one of the he look he's supposed to be with the youngest, but actually he looks older than all the others put together. Um, is saying, "Well, no, we can't. We can't do this. It may be that the time of magic has actually passed, and what we should do is we need to be there and available for men or ma- man, as in the race, to dream yeah. from." So he suggests, sort of like this one great like act of magic that pulls the magical realm away and protects it and men and women will only ever visit it in a dream but it will inspire them and that way magic and humanity which balance each other will still be alive Mm. Um, the only person they can send against Omadon is a basically a a modern man a scientist um, who happens to dream of dragons which is Peter Omadon doesn't like this (laughs) They bring Peter across, and Peter's like, dragons are real, I'm talking to a real dragon, he's really enthusiastic. Omadon sends something through, a spell goes horribly wrong, and Peter gets smashed together with Gorbash, who is the the house dragon. (laughs) So he's a dragon, and he doesn't know how to be a dragon. Gorbash is asleep at the back of the dragon's mind, and Peter is now the dragon. And he's kind of like, I've got wings, I can breathe fire, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, They all go on this, this big quest, and... Partway through the quest, things seem to be going quite well. 
And then in the night, this ogre comes when they're at the tavern and snatches most of his party and brings the inn down on top of them. And then being dragons, he and um, the older dragon who's teaching him how to be a dragon sort of pick yeah. themselves out of the wreckage and say, how much wine did we drink last night? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and then they find one of the wood elves who's managed to hide by put, concealing himself in a cauldron full of soup. Um, he said, <laughs> Amazing. He said, yes, I, I was very nearly boiled alive, but it was better than being eaten by the ogre. And he explains that it was the ogre of Gormley Keep that came and took the others away. So literally, this ogre rocks up just to take half their party um, and kidnap them. And they have to, mm-hmm. in, in order to eat them in future, etc. Um, so the two dragons go off to face up to this ogre. This ogre gets no lines whatsoever. He is a player who's been manipulated by Omadon, the the bad Mm -hmm. wizard. And he sees dragon and he's kind of like, yeah, I'll eat dragon. You can see that's literally what's going on. So these two dragons are up against this ogre. And this ogre is humongous, bigger than a dragon. Mm -hmm. Or big enough that to get hold of a dragon, he could just crush a dragon's ribs and wings and what have you. Yeah. Um, and it all ends really sadly, which I'm not going to go into. But the, the point I'm making is this ogre kind of really stays in your mind, particularly as a child, because it's kind of like this is the quintessential ogre. It doesn't care about anything except feeding itself. It's hungry. It will eat mm. you as soon as look at you. It will destroy beautiful things. You know, I mean, it, it wears clothes and it has cooking utensils and things. But essentially, it's so other. It is just it is just an appetite kind of thing. Yeah, it's interesting though that in that the ogre was literally just kind of like the handpiece of of the um of the wizard. Yeah, well, I mean, he, the the point with Omadon is he can use all the dark things. That there is a ladly worm there as well, which like spews acid everywhere and oh, and various other things. So basically, all the, the I mean, just as um, Peter's party can kind of attract good people to help them. Um, Omadon can literally just command all the dark creatures of the fantasy realm to actually get in their way and be obstacles, etc. That is really interesting, but also kind of sad. I yeah. feel a bit sad for the ogre. You feel sad for I mean, the ogre and the dragons, uh, to be honest. And the dragons, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we do. Uh, we also have um, ogres who are a little bit more domestic um in the immortals quartet series don't we yeah this is tamora pierce obviously i'm a fan i've mentioned her a few times i believe <laughs> oh have you i didn't know but this really comes basically the premise of the immortals quartet is that you will have this fantasy realm total um, mm-hmm. But there were no my- mythical creatures or things. There's myths about mythical creatures. So it's a fantasy realm with magic. You get to the Immortals Quartet and then suddenly mythical creatures are appearing and everyone's like, where are these mythical creatures coming from? It's going to imbalance everything. Uh, they're yeah. supposed to be locked away in the, the realm of the Immortals. Um, we don't know how to handle them anymore. And uh, in the second book, which really looks at how you need to not allow your mindset to be made up for you by other people's prejudices. That is the essential point of, of the entire book about Wolf. It's called Wolf Speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the main character is Dana, who um, is a wild mage and she can talk to animals and you, you find out she can do some other pretty cool stuff through the series. Um, but she's kind of like, yeah, I hate storm wings and I hate this because, you know, they, they attack us and try to destroy us. And her horse, Cloud, points out that 
she doesn't hate the wolves, even though the wolves would eat her. It's just that they have a different point of view. And that yeah. she is too, that Dana herself is too young. She's too small a foal to have such a fixed opinion and be so narrow minded, essentially. And it, it, hmm. the whole thing is, is Dana kind of like, you need to learn to look at things just because they come through and they're dangerous and they might be a threat. Look at them first. Um, yeah. Which brings us to the farming ogres because they, uh, they are going along to this this other fiefdom, basically, uh, which there's been some weird reports about people going missing around there. And mm. Dana discovers this group of ogres who've just been, they've literally, it's like they've rocked up and immediately been enslaved and put to work. And Dana actually manages to speak to them. That's one of her powers is the fact that she can speak to a lot of these creatures which are not human. And yeah. the ogres are like, we don't want anything. We just want peace. We want farmland. Mm. and the young mistress of the fiefdom who doesn't have any power because it's going to have been taken away by her older sister uh, says well actually we could do with more farmers so you know we can come to an arrangement here and it, mm. it is very a different perspective on the ogres as in they're just different people they're not gonna yeah, yeah they are dangerous if you upset them but if you treat them well you treat them like a person then there's no reason you can't cohabit peacefully and come to an arrangement. Yeah, it's it is a, it's interesting in that it is sort of like well, you're expecting, but that's because you have assumptions about um, a sort of a creature that you've never actually met. Yeah, you're creating you, your enemy. Yeah, exactly. And if you go in, if if you basically have this idea, oh, ogres are immediately X Y Z, and therefore you start to act in a certain way towards them in that immediately seeing them and starting to try to kill them you might very well find that they well try to kill you back in defense yeah and suddenly it's the self-perpetuating you know definition yeah we all hate each other um they're crude and boorish etc and they're savages and they eat people and it's like maybe they just have a slightly different culture and maybe that culture is eating people in which case their culture is not compatible with yours but yeah. maybe it's not. Maybe you should find out. <laughs> yes. Uh, of course, uh, to finish off, we, we do have to mention the ogre. The, <laughs> the, ogre. the, the one, the ogre. <laughs> the one and the only um, Shrek. Yes. Who's probably one of the most famous ogres of the modern day. Um, the Shrek narrative is a perfect example of the popular modern trend of rebranding traditional monsters as heroes um, in order to explore themes of rejection, prejudice, loneliness, um, and on the other side, the very life-affirming trend of found family, forging destiny despite social limitations, and honest self-expression. Um, there are lots of examples of this. You see it in the way that sort of with Frankenstein's monster, you see it with vampires, etc. Um, and Shrek is just another example of that. What's interesting, I think, for Shrek is that in also rebranding him, he hasn't been transformed. The ogre hasn't been transformed into someone attractive. Um, and in fact, that's a big part of, of his narrative is that he doesn't, stop being an ogre and at one point when he tries to stop being an ogre he realizes it's not the right thing he doesn't stop being an ogre he is accepted as an ogre he finds love as an ogre and the woman that he loves isn't compromising she is also an ogre um you know 
I think it's just, I think the reason it's such a good series uh, that has sort of lasted is that fundamentally it ticks all those boxes of, of what is a feel-good film. <laughs> yeah, and I'd like to point out, what I saw Shrek at the cinema when it came out, back mm. in the midst of time again, um, I'd like to point out that it was such a ballsy decision to do that at the time. Now, part mm. of this was Pixar, Pixar, who had an issue with Disney at the time, they'd had a bit of a mm-hmm. contretemps, was sticking two fingers up yeah. <laughs> at Disney. And, you know, we have things like Frozen and we have things like Brave and what have you now, which don't, like, revolve entirely around romantic love and the fact that things can come in, in different packages and it doesn't always have to follow the fairy tale ending. Mm. Um, but Shrek was a slight piss take on Beauty and the Beast and it was a it was pointing out very specifically that there might actually not be anything wrong with the Beast as he was. And that maybe if you need to make any physical changes, maybe it should be the other way around kind of thing. Um, it, this was so... I, I can't emphasise how different this was to everything else that was being produced at that time, which yeah. I can say confidently from memory. So, yeah, it was a, a really subversive thing to do. And then it was so popular that everybody started doing it. Shrek was the one that really started it. Yeah. And one of the, you know, the, the other themes that we really start to see is, is again, this idea that if we put people into a role and we assign them that role, then they will sometimes actually start to fit it. Um, and sometimes they will make themselves fit it because they've essentially said, well, if you're going to make me the monster, then I might as well be the monster. Yeah. Um, and again, this is something which a lot of people will associate with in some form or another because they are, because they are part of some kind of group or some kind of minority. So um, again, it's why we also see this trend of the um, you know the flip the flipped vampire the vampire hero um, also then being kind of associated with particular minorities such as uh, queerness and and etc. Yeah. Um, so Shrek was a kind of a character who seemed to just really really be kind of enjoying himself seemed to be enjoying his life he liked his isolation he liked his his swamp etc um you know it's not that that then becomes untrue it's not then that um for you know he was only pretending but we understand also that deep down inside of him he was happy with that but he also never kind of reached for anything further because he knew that inherently he was unworthy of it and if you um for anyone who has gone on to see sort of shrek the musical which is obviously based on it they do have a kind of like an interesting song which i can't remember the name of i only heard it recently where shrek has this whole sort of story where he says if i was you know if i could be anything else perhaps you know if i was a hero you know, I could go off and do this and this is what I would do. But at the end, you know, the conclusion is, but I'm not, I'm an ogre. And everyone knows how the story that an ogre is not supposed to do these things. Everyone knows that an ogre has to be alone. Um, So I should just be happy with my lot. And until that point, until the idea that there could be something else was dangled in front of him, he was happy with it. And then having had a taste of it, he, he realised that he wanted more than what he had. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, I, I feel like it's very human. It's a very human story told with a very unhuman creature. Yes. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, I think the fact that, again, he remains an ogre. And with that, as an ogre, you know, he does have all of these sort of unpleasant qualities as well, which are kind of described, you know, the way that he smells, the way, you know, his teeth, um, etc. Um, but he is actually still kind of a relatively nice person. He's got a sense of humour, you know, he's he's actually proven to be a person who is likeable and heroic, um, even if it is initially a little bit, you know, um, unwilling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so really that, you know, is, is two relatively sizable episodes on the fact that you know, ogres can be many different things, um, but mm. certainly when it comes to sort of we get to fairy tales and the more modern interpretations, in fact, some mm. of the brute interpretations and stuff as well, an ogre, it can be, it, it's actually quite symbolic of prejudice. Mm. Um, obviously, ogres and fairy tales being uh, associated with, with the aristocracy and the fact that you've got this these people who are trying to go about their lives but above them is this person who is taking the fruits of their hard-earned labor and giving yeah. very little back and it's like yeah that's the worst kind of nobility isn't it it's the, the ones who don't really fulfill the responsibilities and just enjoy themselves off the of your back yeah um absolutely and of course you know uh, the other sort of the ogre within the aristocracy is um <laughs> that the, there were obviously some members of the aristocracy who were behaving very very poorly um uh such as le, le marquis de sade yeah now um I'm, obviously the the le marquis de sade um was kind of existed after perrault um i'm fairly sure like a hundred years after perrault <laughs> um but there were definitely some very badly behaved, very unchristian sort of aristocrats who were getting away with what they were getting away with simply because they were, um, you know, rich and in positions of power. Um, so even other, you know, even members who liked, even writers who liked the aristocracy could still have been sort of using you know, a aiming things at them, um, but having to do it obviously quietly and subtly, uh, using ogres and things like that. Yeah, um, it's it's sort of a, you know, they, they will consume you, whether it is the, the fruits of your labour, whether it is um, taking advantage of your daughters and sons. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think for me, it, it perfectly encapsulates um, kind of the the continuous fears and the continuous issues and problems that people have faced. Um, you know, this fear of the environment of which they have no control, which can be fierce and cruel and can destroy. Um, and also this kind of this fear of sort of the past um, in terms of not being civilized at first, still living wild instead of kind of cooking meat instead of, you know, living in houses, etc. Um, and then this kind of this heathenism, 
um, the not again n being uncivilized, yeah. and how essentially um, the we see again and again the idea of therefore eating flesh being prescribed to anything which is uncivilized. Yeah, um, literally just slung as an insult, perhaps from historically something which did exist but is now kind of just used as shorthand to show they are irredeemable and therefore um, we can use them in whatever way we want to represent whatever we want um, and they have no defense yeah. essentially so yeah um, it's very very interesting and I have really enjoyed learning more about ogres and i hope that you guys have enjoyed this as well and that you're not just kind of lying there like what yes um before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and uh this week i will be recommending jules's new book um Ooh. nightmare trail um which is the latest um, installment of the Harker and Blackthorn series. Um, Jules, when exactly does it come out? Because I realise, obviously, I've got a copy of it, but other people have to kind of wait for the official release. Yeah, um, it's, it's out already. We're sort of pre-recording this, obviously. So it's, it probably by the time it says it will be out already, it's out on the 22nd of November. Um, Brilliant. Yes, and uh, yeah, it's... Uh, kind of an emotional book actually <laughs> it is um I, what interested me was how much you, sort of you were talking about how okay this is wild this is and, and you had all these kind of ideas and stuff like that when you were writing it that you were talking about um and you know saying how it might be just a tiny bit a, a little bit too much or, or too wild or etc um like a little bit too ridiculous and then i got it and I was like, hold on, there's some stuff here that's a little bit too real, Jules. <laughs> <laughs> this is not ridiculous. This is, this is not ridiculous at all. Um, I don't want to give many spoilers, um, but this book is going to delight lovers of traditional fairy tales because traditional fairy tales uh, basically come to life yeah, it... in this story. And I don't feel that's a spoiler because it, it happens actually very early on. Um, and oddly enough, while all of these kind of fairy tales are coming to life, um, Amy is being faced with these very unfairy tale-like realities of stresses in a relationship where things aren't just happily ever after, but um, weirdly enough, the traumas of the past actually do start to affect the relationships of the future. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but I have really, really enjoyed uh, sort of <laughs> the story. Um, there are some wild moments, as Jules says, but they are brilliant. Um, and I think that people are just going to enjoy it from start to finish because um, it really does start with this fantastic atmosphere um, and then gets into the action straight away. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, if you have fond childhood memories of being read fairy tales and everything ends happily, or, you know, you have fond memories back to nursery rhymes and stuff, I'm probably going to mess with that for you, <laughs> so yeah. be warned. Oh, yeah. If if you're going into it saying, OK, but I kind of want to see the, the darker side of fairy tales, um, you're, you're in the right place. 
You're definitely in the right place. Yeah. Um, and on that note, guys, we're going to say thanks very much for listening, and we will catch you guys next week. Yeah. Thanks. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.